Hello, welcome to a View from the Side podcast with me, your host, Rosie Clement Henyon. On this podcast, we're going to look at art in Wales. I'll be interviewing established artists on their careers to recent graduates, as well as art historians and curators on the artists and issues that matter most to them. In this difficult time, I want this podcast to inspire and uplift those who are passionate about the arts, and specifically to give a platform to our experiences in Wales. Today I'm honoured to welcome Dr Peter Wakeling onto the podcast. Currently the President of the Contemporary Art Society for Wales, CASW, and a member of CADU, the Welsh Government's Historic Environment Service, and previously the Secretary of the Royal Commission on the Ancient and Historical Monuments of Wales. Wakelin has written extensively on Welsh art, including monographs on Charles Burton, Roger Cecil and Sally Moore. He curated Refuge and Renewal, Migration in British Art, shown in the RWA in Bristol earlier this year, and was due to be exhibited in MoMA McCuntliff for three months, but had to close after a few days due to COVID-19. Wakelin also curated the 80th Touring Exhibition for the CASW in 2018. Formerly the Director of Collections and Research at National Museum Wales, Wakelin has a thorough and insightful understanding of Welsh art. Hello, Peter. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you very much for inviting me to take part, Rosie. Thank you for coming. I'd like to begin by asking, do you consider yourself an art historian? Because often in your bio, I have seen writer and curator. And I know that originally you trained in geography and architecture. So I'm curious to see how you made that transition as you write so well on art. Hmm. Well... I consider myself a kind of art historian. I think uh, a lot of art historians in the profession probably wouldn't consider me to be an art historian because I haven't been through their kind of training, the kind of training that that you've built up, Rosie. Um, So I think I come to things in a a slightly primitive way in some respects, but I have been trained as a historian and a historical geographer. And I grew up in a house full of art and books about art and a family fascinated by art. And my partner, husband, uh, Clive Fix Jenkins, is an artist. So, you know, we live with art all the time. And I I think it's very important in any discipline that you have a a diversity of people who bring different things. So I think I'm, I'm part of the art history ecosystem, but I'm not necessarily part of the club. I like that though, because I think that's what I do find about your writing is it's really fresh and I think it does come from a different perspective and I think that is why you write so well on it, actually. Thank you very much. I think there are a couple of things that I find myself thinking about when I'm writing that maybe some people in art history don't. One of them is that I'm very interested in the idea of communicating to people and talking about where art has come from and trying to help people see art in ways that they might not do coming directly to it themselves. The other is that I come to it as a historian who's interested in evidence and narrative and, you know, trying to find a storyline through things and how things happened. So, you know, that creates a different way of thinking about and talking about art history, I think. What led you to research and write specifically on Welsh art? Well, as I was, I grew up in Swansea. And so while growing up, I was interested in lots of artists who were around me. You know, we we knew lots of artists because my parents were both artists. And we were very involved in the Swansea Art Society, 
my dad was the exhibition secretary and the secretary and the chairman at various times. And when I was very young, I used to go along with my parents to hang exhibitions for the, the Swansea Art Society. A lot of my childhood was spent cutting out lengths of cord and putting in screw eyes and things like that <laughs> so that exhibitions could be hung in mm. the Royal or the Glyn Vivian or various other venues. I was actually made an honorary member of the Art Society when I was about 10 by Ron Corr, who was the then chairman. He announced it at an exhibition opening that I'd become an honorary member for doing <laughs> such washing up. <laughs> and that's a long way around saying that I suppose if you know a lot of artists, you're interested in how they all fit together and what they fit into as, as individuals. And I was certainly noticing in terms of reading about art that some of these people who were really considerable artists in the world I came from, people we knew like Glenis Core, but also my parents' sort of heroes as international artists, they weren't necessarily getting written about all that clearly and certainly connections weren't being made. And so the Welsh artists around us, I felt, needed more appreciation and publication. Yeah, it links into how, as well as on Welsh Art, but how you write about that because you were literally involved with the circles, you're directly getting that experience. I obviously was very tied up with industrial heritage. My master's was in industrial archaeology, and then I did a PhD on history. So I was very tied up then in writing about other historical topics. But uh, I started looking to getting more and more interested in art in the, uh, in the early 1990s, I suppose. I was asked to write a history of the Welsh group. Uh, oh, which right, yeah. Well. So, is uh, that creating an art community? Yes, which I arranged as an exhibition that I curated at the National Museum in Cardiff. Was that one of your yeah. first sort of big publications on it? Yeah, that was yes. And you know, I, I think anybody reading that will say that this isn't this is coming at it in a way that's about the biography of a community in a way, the relationships between people, where their influences came from, how they worked together to create an artist's group and relationships between themselves and opportunities. So, you know, I was coming as a, with elements of social history and even economic history, as well as ideas about art and uh, Yeah, art the very like practical factors that do affect how art is produced. Yeah, and how artists want a need to work together sometimes in order to be seen. Definitely, and I think since I've graduated and been trying to create networks, I think I would write differently about art history now. I think it's good having the practical sort of understanding of it's not just there are galleries because it's hard to get into them. And especially in a time like this with COVID, those opportunities are even more limited. So it's interesting looking back to the Welsh art group and how they were struggling. And so they made their own opportunities. Talking about how you wrote about industrial heritage, I think that might have given you really good insight for writing about the Rhondda group and Charles Burton. I know the valleys quite well, although I grew up in Swansea, not in the valleys. There's a world of difference between the two. I was always really interested in the valleys. And when I was 11 or so, I got involved in work on the preservation of the, um, the Neath Canal. And my parents were very indulgent and used to come up on working parties with me. So they got involved as well. And we were working on, uh, as a group of volunteers, on the restoration of sections of the Neath Canal. And so, you know, I was spending time in the valleys every other weekend. We'd go and do one of these. Amazing. So I was very familiar with the industrial landscape. And because I was so, I was obsessive actually about the history of canals and the um, mm -hmm. waterways. 
that got me interested in the industries that the canals had served. So I, I suppose, yes, in, in many ways, apart from the kind of work that my parents were doing and their friends were doing, one of my first sort of art historical interests was in the art of the South Wales Valleys, which is mm. powerful. And there's some very distinctive and interesting artists. Across Wales, I think the landscape always has a powerful effect on artists, but literally the industry has such a mark on the land. It's a very distinctive landscape. And, and of course, in the for most of the 20th century it was not just a sort of distinctive landscape of heritage it was dominated by active industry mm-hmm. so you'd have the the coke works producing clouds of steam and smoke and you'd have the steel works thundering away in the bottom of the valley at Ebervale, vale and you'd have the huge coal tips still operating with the, um, the the aerial ropeways sort of clanking up and dropping their coal on the tops and a much bigger population than there is today sort of about 20 about twice as many people lived in the upper part of the valleys as do now Mm. so it was a it was a very active and strongly characteristic landscape it's not surprising that so many people responded to it and both the artists who grew up in the valleys and knew them intimately and visiting artists who were astonished to come across them like Joseph Herman Mm -hmm. or George Chapman. Each of them thought they were coming for a short time and ended up working on the same subject for years afterwards. Yeah, Yeah, they did. And Heinz Koppel. Indeed. With Charles Burton's early productive years with the 1940s. Charlie was a student in, in the late 40s and as a student was painting very productively and, and was selling his work even as a student. Actually, I spoke to him on the phone this morning and he said he and Rosemary had both been doing some drawing in, in lockdown. Amazing. Uh, he's, uh, he's 92 now. Yeah. He's had a very long career, which started off in the valleys and mm. um, has explored lots of different subject matter since. Oh, wow. What's your favourite series of his, or not series, but subject matter? I enjoy all of it. He's got qualities that come all the way through, you know, fascination with structure. And we called the book in the end uh, Painting Still, the Charles Burton monograph, because I think there's this extraordinary quality that you find, which you might find in an artist like Chardin or Vermeer, a, a captured stillness that it's not all about movement or drama or even a composition that carries your eye around, it's somehow frozen in a really good way. There is a beauty in his work, nearly all of it. Uh, He's just occasionally moved into something rather dramatic and heartfelt, particularly the things that he did about the First World War or the bombing that took place near his home in in the Second World War, the Ronda. But there is this great quality of stillness. And so I, I like that all across his work. But in terms of my personal responses... I, I'm very drawn to the early Ronda work and to the late Ronda work, which he did as a kind of memories of growing up, coming back to it. And also the domestic interiors, these amazing, big, structured paintings of chairs and sideboards and um, corners of rooms and corners of the studio, uh, sometimes with people in them. I think that's what I was surprised by because the cover of your book is Cat on a Chair and I hadn't actually looked at his domestic works before, but they were the same as the structure. They're amazing how he balances it and carries your eye to different areas. Yes, he said once to me that he likes to start sometimes with an absurdly absurdly difficult problem. Mm. There's one painting, for example, of a leather chair, which is, you know, strung leather on a chrome frame one of those kinds of mid 20th century chairs that's a really awkward shape in any kind of composition. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he's put that in the middle of the picture and then 
around it are carpets and floorboards and walls mm. and pictures leaning against walls. Uh, everything balances, despite the fact that he started with something really awkward and <laughs> yeah. kind of unbalanced. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. How did he come on to that? Was he always doing domestic interiors early on? I think Charlie would probably say that um, he doesn't mind what the subject in is. It's the painting that counts. Yeah. He's chosen all sorts of things as subjects over the years. Mm heads and flowers and sometimes you can't tell whether it's a head or a flower in his most abstract face mm -hmm. and it may be both at the same time and still life objects and room interiors and scenes in the valleys lakes france you know woodlands all sorts of things but they have a quality that runs through them and i think he'd say that painting the interiors was because he had lots of things about him that he'd collected over the years that he loved yeah beautiful tables and he clearly is very interested in in chairs and has lots of beautiful chairs that mm. he's collected over the years and so it was a natural thing for, him, thing for him to decide to paint them because it reminded me like charles sheila's vernacular domestic interiors charlie has an encyclopedic knowledge of art you know and having taught at liverpool school of art and at south morgan barry he's used to talking about art and his his knowledge is phenomenal mm which means that there are all sorts of internal references and rhymes and awarenesses that come through, even though he's painting absolutely what he wants to paint. Yeah. And, you know, he's not really following anybody else in any sense. What do you think about Charlie's work that helps us understand Wales or themes of place, people and identity as he has been working for such a long period? The paintings of the Rhonda by Charlie are the ones that you know most address the idea of what Wales is and what part of Wales certainly is, a significant emblematic part of Wales is. And I think a lot of people are surprised by his views of the Rhonda because they are very peaceable, often beautiful, and they have a real quality of love of the place. And I think a lot of people come to the valleys expecting art to be about the social problems and about the despoiled landscapes. And Charlie hasn't turned away from that. But what he did when he was very young and has done later as well in his recollection paintings is come at the subject from inside. And when you're an insider, you don't see the scars on the face. You see the familiarity of the face. And if something's normal for you, you don't uh, regard it with any kind of horror. You regard it with recognition. And I think that comes through really strongly in those Valley's paintings. And as a, a reflection on history, it's, you know, it's particularly significant that he was painting post-war, not pre-war. Mm. So although part of his childhood was in the Depression, and it was a tremendously difficult time for a lot of people, and he saw women who were starving themselves so they could feed their children when he was growing up. By the time he was painting in the post-war period, it was quite an optimistic time. You know, employment was rising. There were economic opportunities. There was a national health service. The coal industry had been nationalised. So it felt like everything was going in a very positive direction for the valleys. It's really interesting. Like you said, if he maybe started out 20 years earlier, it might have been quite different. It, it might well have been different then. And a lot of the valleys are now extremely beautiful. Charlie says uh, about the head of the Ronda, where he used to live, that it's like the Alsace now because it's so full of trees and woodland <laughs> and wildlife. And he then undercuts it by saying the food's not as good. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, not quite the delicacies. 
the, the Avon Valley is a, a place I, I love. It's, mm. it's a really dramatic landscape, isn't it? With those old viaducts like at Pontry de Ven and the steep mountainsides. You've written Charlie's work has a sincere realism. And I think that is a quality that runs through a lot of Welsh art is sincere. When I researched Cedric Morris, Richard Morfitt wrote he has a direct sincerity. You've written as well Richard Wilson from the 18th century that his landscapes are sincere. What would you say about that? Well, it's a very important quality for me, particularly if you think of the opposite. I really don't like insincere art. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are examples of insincere art for me in Welsh art history as well as more sincere. Yeah. <laughs> so you get the artists who are working too hard to put over a particular viewpoint or to make yeah. something dramatic or to make something saleable. Mm. And actually what draws me in most is when you get the feeling that an art is compelled to do what they do because they absolutely relate to what they're trying to capture yeah and that sincerity yes definitely that comes across I loved your exhibition refuge and renewal I have only been able to explore it sadly through the accompanying book and MoMA's exhibition tour available online on culture colony if you could explain the process of curating an exhibition like that from when you conceived of the idea to making it a reality. I was approached a, a few years ago by Mama McHuntleth and their sponsor, Richard Mayu, who were keen to do an, a, another substantial exhibition, which Richard was willing to, to put some money behind. We discussed various options and one, one of the ideas that I'd been playing with for a considerable time was doing something on refugee artists and, and their impact on art in Britain. So I then went to the RWA in Bristol to see if they would be a partner on it. And we put together a proposal, which I suppose in, in a way came out of my experience of coming across Joseph Herman or his work when I was growing up, going to the Lynn Vivian, and Heinz Koppel, whose widow, Pip, and children I've all got to know in the in, in the last 20 years. So with that enthusiasm for what they did, I wanted to, and a real awareness that particularly in terms of Welsh art, they'd both really been an injection of the new and yeah. of a kind of professionalism in art, which people were very keen to grasp. So I was, I was interested in exploring whether that was a broader picture. And also to explore the other side of the coin, which is when there have been refugees who haven't been understood or appreciated and where the opportunity to be influenced them has been missed. So uh, I'd worked up the proposal in discussion, particularly with the, the, the colleagues at the RWA, and we set about sort of trying to select works that we could we could borrow for the exhibition because we wanted to be a, an exhibition that includes sort of major works from public collections as well as work from private collections that might yeah, be known. Yeah, it's a really exhibitions. amazing collection of different artworks. It was wonderful to bring those things together, and and it was you know it's really exciting to be able to start with Monet mm. and sort of come forward from there so to have a Monet and a Pissarro and a Pissarro junior in the exhibition and yeah ticket and people like that starting early on I love how and ambitious then, it was because it, it is a range of artworks so it's interesting how it began with Herman and Koppel and I think because they were working in the valleys it it was like you said it was quite evident the impact they had yes but like even Monet it sort of slipped through that he was in London for a bit Yes, the artists who were in London during the Franco-Prussian War didn't find much of a welcome at all amongst their contemporaries in Britain. I think Britain at the time was probably very under the spell of pre-Raphaelitism. And, um, you know, the art world wasn't open to the new ideas of proto-Impressionism. 
as it was coming along. And nearly all of those French artists really spent their time with one another. You know, their, their artistic company was the other French artists who were taking refuge in, mm. in London at the same time. Right, yeah. Did they have a meeting place? Did they become a hub? Yeah, I, I believe they were in each other's houses, but also sort of certain cafes that they started to, to fre frequent. Mm. And yeah, they, they saw a lot of each other. And there was the dealer called Durand Ruel, who um, was Monet and Pissarro's dealer and dealer for a lot of the others as well, who set up shop in Bond Street. And that created a, another hub. How has the early closure of the exhibition had an effect on how you perceive it? Well, it's just, a, it's, it's very disappointing that you spend months and months of work on an exhibition with the idea of where it's going to go and having closed in, in Bristol uh, as expected and mm. transferred in, into MoMA, you know, we probably spent 10 full days doing the hang and getting everything sorted out there, three and a half days open. Very disappointing. It was seen by about 400 people in that time, um, yeah. which is quite a lot considering mm. that there was a pandemic starting and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. everyone drove <laughs> up to MoMA <laughs> yeah and it's mid Wales but so that was very disappointing and I hoped and believed that it would reopen but MoMA didn't find it possible to plan for reopening again it is such a shame I think it's a great timely exhibition to show how dynamic their contribution like the refugees have been to British art and culture I was really conscious of the importance of that message in a timely way for our relationship with refugees now mm. because it takes a long time to know what refugees will have contributed you know yeah. there was a, an impact of Monet and Pissarro's time in London but it was probably 30 years later that it was understood and appreciated by the yeah. British <laughs> art market and you know the, the wider artistic culture yeah and it's probably much the same in a way for the the artists of the 30s and 40s so I was very keen to involve the work of a lot of artists of more recent times. And yeah, I think that's brilliant. With... So it's it's got complete contemporary relevance then and giving them a platform yeah. rather than delay the <laughs> appreciation. Yes, exactly. What do you think you've learned from working closely with those artists that you can talk to them, have the discussions directly with them? One of the things that I think I appreciated from talking to them was how, you know, actually the fundamental stories are the same of why people become refugees and the kinds of problems that they have to deal with and the tremendous challenges of trying to begin life again in a new country, often with language difficulties, as well as, you know, lack of contacts or real help or the ability to understand the environment in which you're trying to work. Those challenges that people have now are exactly the same challenges as people had in 1870 or 1935. And I think probably the most has been got out of the contribution by refugee artists when the most welcome and support has been given to them. Mm. Uh, and particularly in, in the 1930s, there was a, a really well-organised reception for artists who were escaping, escaping fascism in, in Europe and coming to Britain. And, uh, you know, contacts were made for them and opportunities were created in ways that we should be doing now because we've got so much to gain from it. So, you know, one of the things that struck me about working with contemporary artists was that the stories are really remarkably similar. And another was, I suppose, the reflection of the individual receiver's position in all this, which is that actually it can be quite hard to understand and get to grips with something that is new. So, you know, just as a lot of British audiences in the 30s found expressionism extremely difficult to mm. take on board or, or appreciate, they found it more ugly than engaging. 
I think quite a lot of contemporary art from the Middle East, for example, is not easy to, to grasp. And we need to be reminded that actually you take time to understand work by looking at it. And it may be that there's something really important to be learned from it. Certainly perceptions, you know, we come, we come to any art that we look at with an eye that's educated to a certain level in a certain tradition and you know we can expand that education and widen into new traditions by learning to do so but your grasp of of any new work is sort of culturally determined for yeah quite a long time until until you've you've learned more mm-hmm, definitely it'd be brilliant i think swansea as well as a city of sanctuary status it'd be great to really get some more systems to help refugees coming over now how do you think an exhibition like this expands our ideas of nationhood? I think it, looking at the strands of influence that come from outside and come from elsewhere, I think it shows us that visual art, in just the same way as, say, aspects of science or music, is an international field. Mm. And you know, influences move around the world with speed sometimes. It's looking at those comings and goings and the impact that they've had in Wales is a reminder to look for the similarities between different places in the world as well as the differences and you know you understand perhaps what is distinctive about Wales more for understanding the currents that come from outside than you do if you try to ignore those and 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 look at just what is literally distinctive, which is isolationist and, and separatist. And I think there's inevitably a great deal in Wales that is influenced by outside and that is a it's a shift of emphasis rather than rather than a, an absolute difference. Mm. Um, and there is an argument in certain, you know, it, in the wider world, a lot of people would say, well, there is no such thing as Welsh art. Not not in the sense that there is no art in Wales, but in the sense that there's no distinctively Welsh art. It's a matter of quantification of difference rather than it being a, a yes or no answer. Yeah, because <laughs> definitely, because I'm conscious of saying this podcast is about art in Wales. I think that for me, there are a whole, whole number of themes that do come through as particularly strong in Welsh art. And I really would like to see those appreciated more by people outside Wales. One of those is the idea of romanticism. You know, not all art in Wales has a romantic spirit to it. But I think particularly in terms of romanticism associated with the landscape, there has been a really powerful tradition of it. Not ubiquitous, but strong. And so if you look back to the, I explored this a bit in an exhibition that I did at Mama McCuntleth a few years ago on romanticism in the Welsh landscape. It began by looking at the 18th and early 19th centuries and you know, the fact that you had Richard Wilson, who was Welsh, establishing really the idea of a natural response to the real landscape rather than simply creating the uh, images that used landscape in the grand manner in a constructed way. So, you know, he was recognised by Ruskin and others as the father of landscape painting and a great influence on Turner and Constable. And then you get this sort of huge wave of people who come to Wales from the flatlands of the south and east. <laughs> so you get Cotman and you get Turner and Palmer, a whole lot of other people who 
who come to Wales because they're enormously excited by the topography of Wales, mm. but also by the sense that they're getting in touch with an ancient culture at a time when almost everybody spoke Welsh and a lot of people were monoglot Welsh. And they felt that they were getting in touch with the ancient British yeah. with the more diverse landscape of uh, communities of, of England. I think it produced something new in those artists. I think that you know, Turner in particular, you can see through his successive tours of Wales in the 1790s, he develops from being somebody who was capturing topography into somebody who invested the landscape with feeling and response and mood. Mm. Um, you see that in a number of artists who, like Cotman, you know, kept returning to it in older life, even though they hadn't come back to Wales, in returning to Wales regularly with paintings in his case, paintings of Cadre Idris, for example. So I think Wales really was significant in sparking off something about the romantic movement of British landscape painting, which was a very distinctive movement. Mm. And although the artists weren't Welsh, apart from Wilson and you could say Thomas Jones as well in this category, and a few others, the most significant artists did have a really strong influence from Wales as a landscape and culture. And then you get an almost sort of an exact reflection of that with the neo-romantic artists in the 1930s and 1940s. And you get Graham Sutherland and John Piper alongside Welsh artists like Kerry Richards, who found something that really excited them about the Welsh landscape, which injected this romantic impulse into their work and changed them. Uh, you know, Sutherland said it was going to St. David's that taught him to paint. Mm -hmm. um, Piper was in Wales all the holidays you know, without exception, with his Welsh wife, Mavanwy. Yeah. The, the places of Wales and the drama of Wales was really important to them. Yeah. Cedric Morris has a quote about, because the Welsh landscape has inspired so many artists, but then it felt, where's this gap of Welsh artists being recognised for doing it? Morris said, the English perspective has been forced on us. Do you think throughout that process, a romantic view of Welsh landscape that a sort of sincere one got lost along the way? I think there's a great tendency in any art form for successful innovation to become unsuccessful imitation. <laughs> you know, transition along the way where um, where something that's fresh and exciting and mm. direct and really experienced gets turned into something secondhand. Yeah, yeah. There was a remark of John Craxton once about crescent moons, which he he'd started picking up from looking at Samuel Palmer's drawings and um, and. Craxton would put a crescent moon in and, and um, John Piper did it on one or two occasions. And then suddenly everybody was doing it. It was a trope. It was a, a habit. And um, you know, it's like a sort of symbol to say, this is a romantic painting. Uh, this is how you should respond to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And at that point, the game's lost, really. Yeah. And that's why I think I loved the, the Ronda group, because it sort of felt like it turned... You know, I'm not a believer in change for its own sake and and in, you know, the, the best art always being the, the most novel. But I, you've got to have freshness, you know, and, and freshness in the eye of the artist comes from exploration, whether it's exploration along with a wider movement or exploration that comes from tying yourself to the easel in the studio or the camera or whatever yeah. else the tools might be and, and keeping at it. Mm -hmm. That commitment. You've written as well about Roger Cecil. How would you describe his work and along that line? I think Roger Cecil's a tremendous example of somebody who was 
constantly pushing himself by just working every day. And he read about other artists and he liked to go to exhibitions. Where was he born? He was born in Abertillery, 1942. So right in the middle of the South Wales coalfield, one of the deepest of the valleys. He really wanted to develop his own vision, not be pushed this way and that by, mm. by other movements. And you can see that he's an artist of his time in many respects. You know, he, there are similarities in aspects of his work with Roger Hilton or with David Hockney or with some abstract expressionists. But his work is also completely distinctive. You can, you, it could only be his when you see it. Yeah. He achieved that by working very hard in the studio all the time. Mm. Uh, was completely committed to his work. Was his studio in the Bally's as well? Was committed. Yep. He lived in the same house all his life. Um, so he grew up in Queen Street in Abertillery. Uh, he went to school at the bottom of the same road. He then went to Newport College of Art, which he went to on the bus every day. He was living at home then. After Newport College of Art, where he did incredibly well, he was offered a prestigious scholarship to the Royal College of Art and walked out after probably two or three weeks. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's just like, not for me. Uh, not for him. And he said, he, he said that one of the things that he really didn't want was to be painting in other people's pockets mm. I think one of the things he meant by that was not the sort of proximity of being right next to people but the idea that you were falling into painting like they did uh, right. working in the same way as other people being expected to follow a particular tradition or replicate the work of your most influential tutors that was anathema to him what he wanted was to be able to go home which is what he did and you know he took a job as a laborer so that he could bring a bit of money into, into his parents household and carry on working in his own way and and he did it with the cheapest possible materials he was begging and borrowing things getting spare paper from leftovers from different places and um, using creosote and leftover paint as well he made his career and explored his work by devoting himself directly to it rather than looking at other influences in the end what drew you to his work how did you come across it I remember seeing Roger's work in the 1990s at art shows. He was never very involved in artist groups, actually at all in artist groups in Wales, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, but he showed with a couple of galleries, one in London and, and one in Devon, that showed at the London Art Fairs. And I remember seeing his work there and actually buying a piece, a little tiny abstract image, redolent of the, the Bally's. Yeah, and, brilliant. Gravity uh, there. So I was interested then, and then I, you know, I knew Bert and Joan Isaac very well, who ran their little gallery at Hillcourt in Abergavenny, mm -hmm. and they showed Roger's work and talked about Roger and said I should go and see him. Yeah. <laughs> after Roger died, so sort of unexpectedly in 2015, I was approached by his niece Nicola, who was his executor, to work on the book, and then subsequently the exhibition at MoMA, and I now sort of look after after the estate for Nicola. Was that the first time you got in depth into research in his work? I had actually written a, an article about Roger's work before I was asked to do the book and I uh, that gave me a very good start on, on the book. Yeah. Um, I hadn't actually published the article, it was one that I was developing. And, <laughs> um, so it was a challenge doing the book because there was not a great deal of archive material to go on and it w wasn't easy to see a range of Roger's work uh, sort of kind of chronological order through his career either because w although he'd left a lot of work it was in a very model state and I didn't have access to very much of it mm. so I did a lot of talking to people about his work people who knew him and I 
managed to sort of track down some of the archive material that was was available. That's interesting because I feel that might be a limit for quite a few Welsh artists. Yeah, I think it's probably where my you know my historical experience, historical research experience comes in. I suppose I'm experienced about putting together a narrative from sporadic material, yeah. you know, finding the evidence that you can use and use and thinking of new ways of getting an extra material to, to fill the gaps. Mm. And I'm glad to say that although frustratingly I didn't know Roger, I'd always been meaning to, to yeah. arrange to go and see him on Bert and Joan Isaac's recommendation, but I hadn't done it. And I'd actually stood next to Roger at the reception after Bert Isaac's funeral, but I hadn't known who he was. So I didn't talk to him then, despite the fact that I hadn't actually got to know him. It's funny then we got so close to him probably. (laughs) Yeah, people who knew him very well, a a number of them said to me that the book had really captured him. And one of the great benefits I had was the fantastic couple of interviews that he did for BBC, one in the 1960s and that film that was made about him, Quiet Rebel, the film that was made as a kind of revisiting to that, I think it was 2010. And the combination of those two interviews was wonderful material Mm because it was was words direct from his own mouth, almost uniquely really, apart from the odd bit of correspondence that I managed to find. (laughs) Yeah, that's really great when you find those quotes that are so helpful and can progress your research. Yes, and, and very often, you know, you can work through quite a lot from the things that aren't sent as well as the things that are. So you begin to say, well, if this was true, he probably would have said it. Yeah, so, yeah. that's interesting. And you called him the secret artist. Was he quite a character? He absolutely wasn't secret in so many ways because he was very well known in his community and you know, he had lots of friends. People would be in and out of the house all the time. He wasn't in any sense a loner. Mm-hmm. And he had lots of friends who were artists who used to go and see him. But he didn't really want to be connected in depth with people. He liked seeing people one at a time rather than being connected through groups and societies and Mm. exhibitions. So he showed through his London dealer and through his, his Devon dealer. You know, that was really about it in terms of his visibility. And he didn't go to his exhibition opening. (laughs) The work was public, but he was sort of, sort of secret. He was well connected, but in terms of contacts with people. Do you think that helped going to London to make those gallery contacts compared to artists who did stay in Wales and so had to make societies and groups? I think it gave him quite a a reasonable income for the modest lifestyle that he wanted. You know, he, he didn't want to spend money on anything really except paints. And, uh, yeah, reinvesting, is not Yeah, and, you yeah. know, maybe getting a bit of building work done at the house and so on. <laughs> yeah. Um, he didn't want to go travelling. None of those things appealed. But the result of, of his selling through London galleries from the 90s meant that he had a, a fairly regular, reasonable income. That really allowed him to concentrate on his work. And he, he gave up the labouring and building work that had been done, mm. that he had been doing, um, yeah. in order to be able to concentrate on just painting. Would you say he had a singular big influence on in his work at all? Was there one artist that inspired him or was it a culmination of things? He was very anxious not to have any overwhelming influence on his work. And I think, you know, it's said sometimes that the more influences you have, the less anyone will dominate. And uh, he did read widely and was very knowledgeable about artists. And I I think it means that there wasn't one, that there was no influence that you would say was was dominant. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, he would have been in his 20s during the 60s. Because he went back to the valleys, he could focus on his vision? He did really very much focus. And um, I've seen more of his 
work actually since I did the book and and seen that he was very experimental at times. You know, he was he was really trying hard to look at the place where he lived and the community, the shape of the valley, going on his walks over the mountaintops and find different ways of expressing that. Yeah. That's really um, interesting because looking at his paintings, there's like the big, like when you said that, then looking over the hills, you can see it a bit. I think the things that he loved more than anything were the figure studies and then the sense of his home landscape seen from above. And you very often, a lot of the paintings, you get this sense that the town is down in the bottom of the valley and he's looking down on it. He liked to go for walks before dawn so that he'd see the dawn come up over the valley and see the town below him sort of coming back to life. In 2018, you created the exhibition Then and Now, 80 Years of the Contemporary Art Society for Wales. And I read in the introduction that you purposely wanted to exhibit the width of Welsh art. How does this relate to issues you may have confronted in conversations about Welsh art, if at all? The the exhibition was very much to celebrate 80 years of collecting by the Contemporary Art Society for Wales, and particularly the collecting of Welsh art. So I saw it as a great opportunity to celebrate collecting as an activity Mm. that captures what's going on now. You know, if collecting stops or if collecting all becomes art historical rather Mm. than in the present and of the present, there is a danger that you won't have the fundamental building blocks of art history to go back to in terms of access to the original materials in collections. Yeah, it's completely that ecosystem, which is really interesting. Because I think a lot of big galleries at the moment, big private galleries are worried about, are concerned for smaller private galleries because they're the ones that are going to struggle the most at the moment. Yes. But it's like you said, if those fall through, then you're not going to get these new artists coming. Yeah, the collecting by the Contemporary Art Society has been really important in supporting artists, as Cedric Morris intended when it was set up, I think, as well as capturing for bright, broader society what art was going on and how art was reflecting what was going on in in Wales. And when I say reflecting what's going on in Wales, I mean sort of broader issues of how life was recorded in Wales, like Jack Crabtree's paintings of the last sort of flourish of of the the coal mines under the NCB, as well as what was going on artistically in Wales. The other thing that I was really conscious of was wanting to choose really compelling works. So, you know, to be able to go through the Contemporary Art Society collections and choose some of the things that I thought were the, the absolute best yeah and you know whatever that means <laughs> but you know to my eye the, the the things that to me were most likely to be engaging to people and that were produced by sort of distinctive artists who had interesting careers and were fresh and genuine and compelling you know that those are the kinds of things i was looking for in in selecting the exhibition yeah. And it was very interesting that the response to the exhibition was fantastic. You know, the, we had hundreds of comments in the visitors book, 800 comments in the visitors book, I think. At yeah, the first that, that's so good. And I think that's why it was nice to see such a range. I've spoken about this before, but I think like growing up here, there weren't, weren't many opportunities to see lots of Welsh art, but it was great to see its progression. Yes. And I, I think even now, you know, you, you can, I think actually you could go to that exhibition and in, what was it, 30 or something works, you could get a perception of development of Welsh art in the last 80 years, mm. which you wouldn't get by going to any of the any of our current galleries, even the ones with quite substantial amounts of space at their disposal. Exactly. And it was just um, a few rooms, but... It was basically one room, yeah. You know, yeah. At, at the Pierhead building where we showed it and at the Glen Vivian where we showed it, it was one room. Mm. And yet, you know, with the range of materials, you know, you could see 
an awful lot of what was going on. And the comments revealed that most people had gone, almost almost everybody had gone, found something that really inspired them. Yeah, yeah. And they're quite different things. Mm. Um, some things that, you know, perhaps I least liked that <laughs> other people absolutely loved. Mm. Uh, it was an exhibition that produced quite a lot of delight and excitement. And that, yeah, <laughs> that's, not, that's, <laughs> that's, what, that's what you hope for. <laughs> we managed to tour it. So, you know, it ended up going to three other venues. I think the final number was 38,000 visitors. That is huge, yeah. Well done. (laughs) But I remember, because one of the artworks that I was most, I can't remember his name, perhaps if you can remind me, it was the photographer, um, but it reminded me of quite American, like, colours of, it was quite bright. Do you mean the the three three photographs of uh, the same cafe in Cardiff Bay? Yeah, I really like that. Beecham, Beecham. It really reminds me, I had this one class on, like a pioneering photographer taking pictures of ordinary scenes in this colourful way. And I just loved seeing that with a Cardiff cafe version. Yes, yes. The other thing that I spent a lot of time on that in that exhibition was writing the the short labels, the short texts for each each work. What do you aim to do with those labels? It can vary from one exhibition to another in in terms of refuge and renewal. I was trying to make sure that the story of refuge and the life of the artist came through. In these ones... I was wanting to help place the the artist in some kind of context in Welsh art history, you know, all in a hundred words, yeah. <laughs> and at the, same, at the same time to to try and give people a way into the to looking at the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it means a little bit of information about how the idea developed, or what the subject is, or what the background to the subject might be, mm. or what movement it's coming out of. You know, it'll vary from one thing to another how you talk about a piece of work but one of the things that has often struck me when I'm writing labels is how much I I learn while I'm doing that writing because it forces you into looking harder at a piece of work and looking more thoughtfully at a piece of work Mm -hmm. you know there's this awful statistic that the average I can't remember where it comes from so I don't it shouldn't be quoted (laughs) context but it's a rough guideline that the average amount of time spent looking at an artwork in museums and galleries is less than two seconds yeah so in the process of writing a label, you're forcing yourself to look harder and think harder. Mm. And, you know, that's what we should be doing. And then I try and distill a little bit of what I've learned from doing that so that people have got a faster access to it. In the, yeah, because you want to hit label. the key qualities quite quickly. Yeah. And, and, and so many labels in galleries around the world seem to be about profess- uh, trying to um, impress other professional curators, you know, and show, show off how much you know and what fancy terms you can use. Yeah, rather than for the audience. the wrong place to be doing it. You know, yeah. these labels should be about the audience that's coming in and, you know, they should be written in such a way as to be accessible to most people who read them and different people will get different things out of what they read. But everybody who reads them should be able to understand what they've read completely agree because you don't want to get lost in a long lengthy label with complex terms rather than just looking at the artwork which is the most important you want to sort of base base the viewing Um, but we had very good feedback on the labels as well and you know it's it's quite i'm very pleased there and at refuge and renewal that people quite often wrote in the visitor book how interesting they'd found the labels. <laughs> Great, yeah, you know, yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's not right. Maybe they should be concentrating <laughs> on the work. But actually it is, you know, an exhibition is an opportunity to provide some information as well as the opportunity to encounter the work. Mm. If people are enjoying 
reading the labels and then looking harder at the work because of them. I think it's a win-win situation, really. Yeah, and then they'll it will stick with them and they'll take it on, maybe. And yeah, well, who knows where you go after that? It's one of the great values of making material available in museums and galleries that people can process that in whatever way they want. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so exciting. Like 38,000 people have seen that one so i'm sure yeah and you know most of them will never think about it again but uh there'll be some who always remember a particular picture or think differently about the coal industry because of seeing the jack crab tree or get really enthusiastic about being artists themselves or decide to start collecting art because Mm -hmm. they they'd like to have something like this on their walls you know there's so many different ways of responding And I find it very irritating when exhibitions try to push you down one particular response, you know, the old interpretation centre route that says we start the visitors at A and then we progress them until we've got to Z. And this is the experience we want them to take away. Well, actually, objects and artworks have multiple meanings and we need to be able to let people, we need to create a kind of fertiliser in in terms of the information we provide them with for them to grow their own responses. Definitely. and get what they need, which might be very different from different people. Yeah, that's so important. It's a really good view and base to set off an exhibition. And with your role currently as president of the Contemporary Art Society for Wales, what would you like to do? How long have you been doing it as well? I was elected just at the time the exhibition opened, 2018. And it's an honorary position being president. You know, I'm there to provide a bit of advice from time to time or to be a standing board for the chair of the society and the other officers rather than having a direct role and so that you know the society continues to develop and I help in any way I can. What would you like to achieve there whilst in that role? Well I, it's not really for me to do the achieving as as president. I've read that it was going of a direction more of programming there rather than collecting which sounds quite different from what you think is crucial. Yeah well it it did do that and there are sort of financial reasons behind that as much as anything. I think personally that it's it's really important to keep collecting, particularly when the resources for some of our permanent institutions to collect are very slight, mm. um, particularly local authority galleries. You know, they've got peanuts to, yeah. to spend on, on collecting. I think it's a healthy thing for Welsh art that we carry on collecting in this small way that the Contemporary Art Society can, can contribute to. But CASU also needs to be responsible for programming as well and, um, you know, supporting public lectures. And, you know, it, the, it's currently supporting a number of national initiatives like Artis Mundi and uh, Wales in Venice and so on. Mm. So, you know, I think one can do both of these things at the same time. But obviously, we can't put as much money into either as, as we'd like. Yeah, it seems that's across the board, though, with, you know, like the artist support pledge that's been set up and that's generated yes. a huge amount, which is really interesting way to make sure that money keeps circulating directly to artists the glim vivian recently acquired anya payne still through the richard and rosemary wakeling award i think that's been a really great step in the right direction for the glim vivian and i'm glad that they've acquired that i think that's a fantastic acquisition for the glim vivian because it's powerful work and it's i think one that's going to really be utilized by the gallery in communicating with with audiences and working with educational groups and so on. So I think it's going to be something that people enjoy and think about when they come in. It's got a great combination of challenge 
and also humour and accessibility. And it's great to be able to support a, a young Welsh-speaking Black artist from North Wales uh, as part of the, the diversity of, uh, of the collection of Glenvivian. Yeah, it's going to definitely stimulate, you know, discussion that hasn't been there. I love the medium of it. Yes, I haven't seen it in the flesh yet, but it's certainly a textile piece, isn't it? Mm, I'm excited to see it when it comes up. So your very current project recently, well, only yesterday, The Slave Trade and the British Empire, an audit of commemoration in Wales was published and you supported the task group as a researcher. What was your role? What was the most profound finding for you? And are there lessons that you'll take forward into other projects? The First Minister set up the task and finished group to produce an audit of commemoration of people involved in the slave trade, ownership of enslaved people on plantations and and also wider racial discrimination and oppression of people of colour through the empire and colonialism. And that task and finish group was led by Gaynor Legal. And I was asked to effectively be the researcher on the project and do a lot of the drafting of, of the report. I was, uh, it was, it was great for me to be doing actually what turned out to be an enormous amount of work in tracking down all these individuals who've been largely forgotten about, it has to be said, who, who were involved in different aspects of these abuses in the past, and then searching to see whether they were commemorated in statues or plaques or street names or building names. And it was exciting to go to a whole lot of sources that were relatively new to me, and particularly the uh, wonderful database produced by the UCL Legacies of Slavery database uh, and the Slave Voyages database that's been produced for voyages out of Liverpool and Bristol and London, both of which you know provide phenomenal qualities of hard data about people. Yeah. And then there are all sorts of difficulties about identifying exactly who's who and you know, whether they're really the person that you think you can track down as having a monument or a street named after them. And then if you're approaching it from the point of view of doing a search of all the street names with a, all the streets in Wales with a particular name, trying to find a logical conclusion as to whether they're named after that person or yeah. a completely different person. I mean, to take Picton Street, for example, there are lots of Picton Streets around Wales. Thomas Picton, who was the most notorious of the slave owners and abusers in being the governor of Trinidad in the 1790s. A number of them are named after him because he became a hero after being the most senior officer to die at the Battle of Waterloo. But there are lots of Picton streets that are named after villages called Picton or Picton Castle or other members of families called Picton. You know, it's so complex. Uh, so there's yes, there, there's a lot of sort of logical processing to do to actually come to conclusions about whether well this is absolutely definitely or quite probably or certainly not yeah. named after General Thomas Picton. So you know, there was a great volume of work to do, and it was only launched yesterday, having been sort of approved by the Task and Finish Group, debated and developed by the Task and Finish Group and the members of that and then gone out to an external reference group and come back for further processing and then been published by the Welsh Government. Uh, but the response yesterday and today has been really positive. And I think one of the things that's been very successful about it is that it has remained very much an audit, which was what the First Minister asked for. So it's remained factual and evidence-based. And it's not saying these are bad people or these are the best people or, um, you know, this should come down or that should be changed. Just yeah. saying, this is where we are as the beginning of a process of truth and reconciliation, if you like. And it's that's great a to... really important step. 
Yeah, and presenting that concrete evidence to the public. And the First Minister said when he talked to Gaynor Legal that it's sometimes more powerful to come to your own conclusion when based on the evidence given to you rather than yes. presenting the answers. And I think for, for a lot of people with African or West Indian heritage in Wales, the most important thing is to be acknowledging that, that these aren't necessarily our heroes, that they're, you know, they're part of a, a very complicated and sometimes very dark story, rather than starting from the point of saying these are our great heroes and we put them on pedestals. You know, that simply broaching that and saying there's this side to the story as well as that side to the story is actually a big step forward. Yeah. And we also so looked at some figures of black heritage who might be commemorated in Wales, whether they're international figures like Paul Robson, who has a, a couple of plaques in Wales, or Nelson Mandela. There's one street in Wales named after Nelson Mandela. Or, you know, the great numbers of people who've made great contributions to Welsh society over the last couple of hundred years. Mm longer even who might be commemorated in some way and there's you know some fascinating things for me mm. come out of that mm. about people who escaped from american slave plantations in the mid-19th century and came on these lecture tours to wales to to build up the abolitionist movement or the sports people the performers and you know there's so, there's so many um, contributions and unexpected links in there and I've now got very good experience in writing potted biographies that bring out the issues. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I wrote... Uh, and apply it to 200, labels. <laughs> 240 plus biographies in the end. Yes, very much like writing the labels. Where you yeah. get to sort of bring out the key information in a very short piece of text. Mm, well practised in it. Yeah, I think that would be great to hear. I've, like, I don't think I've learned about the lectures against abolition in Wales. There's so much to come out from the publication. And for example, now you're you're developing design in Wales and archive for Welsh architecture in Wales. Do you think something like that publication that you've been working on will inform that? There might be some of the the methodology that was developed on on that that, that could come across. I think a lot of what we need in sort of understanding Welsh culture, whether it be contribution of individuals of African heritage or architecture and architects or artists and art, you know. A lot of the basics is about just collating information and and making it understandable yeah. that these people existed. Mm-hmm. And this is what they did, and this is when they did it, and this is who else they they might have come across or affected. Exactly. And and simply doing that is putting down the building blocks for um, your generation to come along and uh, continue developing. And, um, <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah. And your your books have given me a building <laughs> block as well <laughs> with that sector in itself. So, yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming on. It's been really brilliant talking to you. I look forward to seeing your archive project develop and being able to access this part of Welsh history. It has been a pleasure to talk to you about your work and these incredible Welsh artists. Thank you very much, Rosie. It's been great talking to you and I'm very grateful to be asked. I'm used to talking about artists and architects and other people, but it's uh, it's rather unusual and a little bit, uh, little bit alarming to be talking about myself, but... Uh, <laughs> It's been fun too. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Peter.